Hello and welcome to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about the deep principles we hold dear, the way we talk to each other in public and how we can build better relationships with people different from ourselves. I hope many of you will be able to come along to The Sacred Live on September the 11th with Richard Ayoade and Lydia Fox. Please follow us on Twitter for more details. Roderick Otuma is a poet, theologian and peacemaker and he's the guest on our episode today. Until recently, he was the leader of the Corrymeela community, which is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. They describe themselves as people who seek to engage with the differences of the world, people who disagree with each other on matters of religion, politics and economics, and people who wish to name our own complicity in the fractures that damage our societies. We spoke about his sacred values of language and encounter, why poetry is so helpful in helping build our understanding what keeps him coming back to the story of faith, and how much he loves it when people do unexpected things in situations of conflict. I really enjoyed this episode, and I hope you do too. Podrick, we're going to start with the question I ask everyone, which is a big meaty one about your sacred values. Is that a term that's familiar to you? Do you feel like you have a good sense of what I mean by it? Um, I'm not entirely sure what it means, so I'd love to hear a little bit more. It is used in different ways in different places, which is the unhelpful thing. But it is often used in sociologists' sociological thought and also in some conflict resolution thought to try and describe the things that we hold dear that are not about our rational self-interest, that we try and live our lives by the kind of principles that come to define us. And then when those are pressed on or they're threatened, we feel that strong kind of almost in our body, that instinctive negative sense against them of something very deep being compromised. So they're spoken up. Some people don't like sacred. Some people don't like values. But that's the shorthand uh, for what we mean. And we think getting people to reflect on their own helps us better understand sometimes why conflict happens and uh, where people are coming from in our public conversations. Um, that's a that's a lovely description. Uh, as I think about what sacred values are for me, I think of um, two in particular: language and encounter. Language in the sense of choosing words that give sense to the reality and the truth of a circumstance, a relationship, uh, uh, something that's drawn people together. And then encounter with that encounter is something deeper than language, but also often encounter is language in the sense of a capacity for people, especially maybe where there's difference or difficulty or pain. Encounter is the way within which we can feel like we meet each other and see each other and are in a certain sense transformed by that experience. That's beautiful. I will definitely pick up some of those threads later, but first we're going to zoom back because we want to situate people in their stories. In We believe that their sacred values are often the result of the way they've lived, their story of their life. So I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood. And um, when I interviewed Krista, I acknowledged that this is this question is a bit of a homage to the question that she asks everyone. But we frame it as what were the formative ideas in the air in your childhood, whether those were political or philosophical or religious that have helped make you the man that you are? Mm. There is a very political one, although at the time I didn't know what politics was. I grew up speaking Irish and English. And at the age of five, I went to primary school and I remember the first day the teacher was introducing the idea that we were going to be learning Irish and the teacher said a few words in Irish and I was shocked because I understood perfectly. I didn't know. I spoke two languages. I didn't know what languages were and I was shocked that I understand this thing that the teacher said I wouldn't and then I felt like I'd done something wrong because the teacher said this is 
the way things are. And I immediately had the sense of that's not the case. Something must be wrong. And it's definitely my fault. So later on that day, I remember saying to my parents, um, what is this? And they said, oh, there's Irish and there's English. And I knew we were in Ireland. And I said, why don't we speak Irish all the time? Why do we speak a language from another place here? And that was the beginning of an awareness of um, colonization and people who go places and how language can be used as a form of linguistic colonization, as divide and conquer, of creating powers within powers and delineating the marginalized in terms of a tongue being spoken that would not give you access to the halls of power. That is really fascinating to think of, um, even within the very way of being in the world, the very way that we are able to engage with each other. We're already encountering difference, even in those those very early days, and particularly for you and for others who live in places with that kind of legacy. When we think about language, obviously the the theme that we're often talking about is is public conversation and public debate. Even as we're talking about our common life, we can't get away from language because it's our bridge to each other, and these problems, these tensions often center around the words people use and the tone that they choose to use them in. And most recently this week, as we're recording, people have been talking about cultural Marxism as a phrase. Is that something that's okay to use? Is it something because it's used largely in the alt-right, you can't use it? Similar debates going on, obviously, about the kind of words that we use around trans people, about trying to explain for my grandma why it's not okay to say colored woman, but it is okay to say woman of color. And that I felt very out of depth in that conversation, trying to explain the weight of it in this world when all our terms are contested and potentially offensive. So I'd love to hear kind of what have you learned? What are the principles that you apply in the way that you use language, particularly when you're in these conversations across difference? So phrases that I like to think of within the context of using language carefully when um, conflict has been in the room, I like to hold in my mind um, plurals and um, fluidity, elasticity, because um, what I know is that currently I'm, I'm a gay man and currently LGBT, LGBTQ, LGBTQI, LGBTQI+, these are the general terms that people use around the place. I know that were some of the people who campaign seriously for the decriminalization of homosexuality in Ireland or Britain, I know that were they to hear that now, they might go, what are you talking about? And I know also that in 50 years' time, LGBTQI people in 50 years' time might look back and say, they might look back and have a critical view to what we now consider to be life-giving. And so the question for me is the fluidity about, is this life-giving now? And can we be open to the evolution of language if that things change, if that a a new way of referring to a problem, a person, a place, a, a new way of referring to a discordant experience comes along. Sometimes language can expand and can um, flood into a more expansive terminology. And so I always hold a temporary appreciation for the language that's used right now, knowing that that language very well might change into the future. Because I knew I would be talking to you this week, I had something that I've wanted to ask you about, which was a conversation that I had with a friend who was talking about some of her discomfort around a particular group. And she used the phrase, older white men with access to money. And it was around funding in the charity sector and who funds what and philanthropy. And you know, she's a very wise and thoughtful person. And actually what she was saying made a lot of sense to my experience. But I pushed back and I said, I really struggle when we use that kind of group language that puts all, the, all these type of people in a box as if they're the same. And she said, I actually think it's used badly, but it can be used well because some things are true about groups. And if it forces reflection, that's helpful. But I certainly wouldn't want to be 
talking in categories about people of color or Muslims. So do you think there are places where, and we've got into the habit of doing it a lot, but only with certain groups, there are um, times when speaking in these broader categories are helpful because you're trying to identify social trends or is it never helpful? I think it can be helpful. I really liked what you said there in terms of if we use this in a way and you said if it forces reflection. And for me, that's the question. Am I speaking to a group, even a group I find problematic? Am I speaking to them in a way where they are A, going to recognize themselves without judgment? Maybe they'll recognize themselves with challenge, but with challenge, I think, has a different tone than judgment. And then B, is there going to be shame? I, I don't know that shame and shaming a group of people has ever been a motivator for their change. And what we know in the in the context of group dynamics is that especially when you're speaking across disparities of power, that often the group who have been the most privileged in terms of the, the, de- the data and the details of the right now, as well as the inherited data and details of the powers of their lives, they often exhibit the most vulnerability in terms of feeling the most frightened. And I can appreciate from an analytical point of view, the desire to use language like older white men. I'm 43. I'm sure I'll be an older white man soon. I, I, I'm not straight, so maybe I don't fall into that. But we, we fall into different categories at the same time. And I think something that allows for the fact that they're even in a group that you might disagree with, something that allows for the fact that there is fluidity and plurality there that can allow dignity of imagination such that you can imagine the relationship that might be salvific for the dynamic that has been hitherto uncomfortable or damaging or dangerous. That's so helpful because I do feel like my reaction against using that kind of language was because of an awareness of the complexity and the struggle and the kind of multivocal nature of every human life, no matter what, you know, particular demographic box you fit into. Yeah. I mean, I have a story about this. A friend of mine was working in an environment and at one point he had made a suggestion and um, in the workplace and somebody said, what would you know as a as a straight white man? And the thing is, is my friend is intersex and uh, my friend, he identifies as male, uh, is has known since the for a long time that he's intersex and lives privately. Um, regarding the question as to how intersex lives in his body, does not wish to be um, disclosive regarding data, but found himself thinking, how many other times do we think we're speaking to a group of people that we can categorize when actually there's private parts of their own story that we simply don't understand? Old griefs, um, details about their lives, details about what might seem to be really straightforward, which in fact is not. And so I find myself, as far as possible, trying to be generous in my imagination about the pluralities that other people hold, especially pluralities that other people hold where we are on different sides of a disagreement. And I'm less interested in critiquing somebody for their identity when it comes to a disagreement and much more interested in saying, can we talk about power and the practice of power? Because then we can speak about something that is actually separate to identity. That's really helpful because I think you know, the example I was using, which is about philanthropy or, or giving or, or forms of charitable donation, perhaps a more helpful way to framing it would be that there are some 
power dynamics and some gender dynamics in that industry that it would be good to question rather than saying kind of older white men with money are in themselves a problem because my sense is a lot of them are trying to do a lot of good. They're They're just working. Yeah. Yeah. But they've just been formed by a certain set of narratives and a certain set of expectations that's got them to where they are, not from any ill will. And by kind of labeling that defensiveness kicks in, right? And that the possibility of actually changing any of those dynamics shrinks a bit, I think. So we're talking about language. I'd love to hear again a little bit more about your backstory. So talk to me about when did you start writing poetry? So the curriculum in school, I grew up in Cork on the very south coast, and the curriculum in school was suffused with poetry. So I don't ever remember a time when I wasn't learning new poems off by heart in two languages every week, um, From certainly from the age of five going into schooling. That was the case. But even beforehand, what is a lullaby or a song but a certain form of poetry, alerting you to form and repetition and, uh, you know, I ams and rhyming sequences. So Around the age of 11, I remember starting to mess around with words. I wrote a silly poem about a big dog called Tiny, and I wrote it out. And my sister, I don't know why she was in my room, my older sister. Anyway, she found it and she edited it and um, came up to me and said, I found that poem of yours in your room and I um, edited it and it's really good. And she said, but here's ways you can make it better. And I read it and thought, damn, she has made it better. And it never even occurred to me to say to her, why were you in my room? <laughs> Looking around my stuff. Such was the joy at having had somebody who had edited me and had helped me find the voice. Um, and that that was a silly point. There was no kind of emotional um, reason why I wished to write that. But it was opening up through form of, of a, a relationship with poetry that then really shortly after that, I began to write the kinds of poems that I knew I needed to write for myself. Poems that felt like silent and secret confessions to myself about my desires, about what I was coping with, about being uh, not fitting in with the other fellows. I wouldn't have had the word gay at the time, but I had all of these poems that were um, sacred and deeply, deeply private and and secret to me. I used to carry them around with me. um, I was worried that anybody would read them. These were the ones I wanted nobody to read. And so poetry um, throughout my teenage life was the thing that saved me. Um, I began to, uh, I'd always loved poetry in school. I'd I'd have read the entire poetry book before the term started and would have always had had my favourites. And uh, so I began to be formed a little bit by some of the form and the style of some of my favourite poets, Patrick Kavanagh and W.B. Yeats in particular at that age. It's really interesting that you talk about it as an as a kind of private and almost secret thing, because one of the things I was reflecting on, and we'll talk a bit more about uh, religious faith, is that in some ways poetry is in the same box for a lot of people as faith, in that it's a private thing. It's something that happens within an internal world of the poet. And then when you read poetry, it's usually quite a private encounter. But I've heard you quite often in in interviews and in some of your work, use poetry in public to use it to try and bring something in our public conversation. So what's the instinct in you to do that? And what do you think it offers? So the, uh, I really like the way you frame that question. The instinct in me, which I recognize is it's just me, and I, I can't speak for how other poets would respond to this, but the instinct in me certainly is this desire to speak from the heart and that poetry brings you to the space of limitation. Poetry is predicated upon the fact that it's not trying to say everything, that there, poetry is filled with empty space on a page and the understanding that I'm carving something out with vulnerability and pain and desire and 
and hope and leaving all these other things out. Poetry goes there in the heart and that is a private place and so many people uh, write those things for themselves or maybe a loved one and never go beyond that. But for me, as I have moved more into public work and both theology and conflict work, I have felt that we need a new tender, vulnerable language that speaks of power but also speaks of pain and I have found myself moved deeply by the capacity that poetry has like a non-canonical sacred text, something that has arrived through the window of one person's life and they have offered it to the wider world and it is meaningful and powerful in that context. Beautiful. So I am deeply interested in religion and in poetry as well and one of the ways I find it most easy sometimes to express my experience of faith. I spend a lot of time uh, talking to atheists. I have a great soft spot for atheists and many of my friends aren't people who believe or really have any comprehension of what it would be like to believe. And poetry is one of the ways that I'm occasionally able to give a bit of a window into that. I'd love to hear, if you don't mind, a bit about your story with faith and how that's developed over time, because you're a Christian and a theologian in a world, certainly more broadly for many people that doesn't make a lot of sense to them. Uh, I try to be a Christian. <laughs> I'm always very nervous about labels. Um, and I much I do love practical language. And I, I love the verb try, and especially the perhaps more expansive verb essay. I, I love to essay uh, to live according to a way that is open to its own participation and power and complicity. And that's how I see Christianity. Now, uh, Christianity was part of the lifeblood growing up. Um, I grew up in Cork, about 10 miles from the city and uh, a village. I think there were 6,000 people when we moved to the village when I was five. And I'm um, sure the, the priest, the chaplain, the, the regular life of the village was all based around mass and knowing the priest and the, the priest coming to different houses to say stations mass throughout the year and the sacraments and so religion was absolutely everywhere an annual parish pilgrimage to walk to the holy well that was in the parish bounds and a mass would be said outside at St. John's well beautifully pagan this old understanding of um, springs of water at their source being um, a place of healing and sanctuary that, that goes back in Irish understanding far far further than Christianity does so I loved all of that my parents got involved in a Catholic charismatic prayer group uh, and that brought new forms of religion into my life forms of religion that were exciting they were very immediate they were very demanding you know responding to Jesus was often being spoken of praying asking for guidance and these were very extroverted forms of religion that were appealing and at times appalling to me and it took me maybe 10 years to realize oh that's not for me but I tried it for a long time um, up until my early 20s I had always been drawn obviously to poetry during that time and drawn to careful, beautiful language and um, simple ways of speaking a language of theology. But I found myself drawn into the more extroverted ways. Um, I found that distressing at times. I found the language of certainty to be unimaginative. And I found also during that time that the imagination of certainty was abusive. It was during that time that there I, I told some people that I was gay and people arranged three exorcisms for me and somebody else then, I was working in a religious context and so somebody said, well, in order to continue here, you really need to sort this out and the exorcisms haven't worked, so you need to go to Paris 
reparative therapy, which was neither reparative nor therapeutic. And all of those things were reductive, constrictive uses of imagination and language and religion. And I, I found those to be horrifically abusive and shame inducing. But interestingly, for me, I have found my salvation in those by staying involved and looking for better language regarding conflict and religion and poetics, rather than rejecting the capacity for religious language to have something to offer. That's, it's fascinating. It's not fascinating. It's, it's horrifying to hear about your experience. But I'm really, I think there'll be a lot of people listening to the podcast who would say, why didn't, why didn't you run a million miles? You know, have to gone through that experience. What, what is it that makes you stay connected to a story and a text and a community and a way of looking at the world that was, you know, that your experience with at points in your life has been so traumatizing? Why, why haven't you um, left God and the church well behind? Well, some of it is because of the beauty of language that you find in the old traditions. Um, I, I think some of the, I mean, ultimately religion is just a form of public poetry. And Hayat already found in the public poetry of religion um, something that was a deep wellspring of beauty and drama and delight and the human condition. And so I always knew that religion was better than the reductive, abusive versions of it that I had experienced. It took courage to step away from those things and to say those things are wrong because that felt arrogant. But I always knew there was better and it wasn't difficult to find better through the Teze community, through Ignatian spirituality, through the Coromila community later on when I moved up north and to find muscles of Christianity that were deeply alert to the realities of the world, to the beauty and complexity of the human condition and to think that we can respond to these in an incarnated moment in the present powerfully. And so I, I'm really grateful for how I feel like I've been saved by people who have been very courageous in naming um, misogynistic, homophobic power, but also naming the kind of abuses of power the likes of which I participated in. It's too easy to just simply identify myself as a victim of bad religion. If I'm going to be honest, I surely need to recognize that I probably was limited and hurtful in how I spoke about religion to other people too. So I have been part of the problem to others as well as part of the problem that has come to me. And I, I liked what religion did in terms of saying, don't think you're always on the right side of things. Be aware that you might also perpetrate some of the things that have been perpetrated on you. And I liked that sense of challenge. And I found that to be muscular as well as really respectful. What needed to be reframed, of course, was that what sin was, sin wasn't being gay. Sin wasn't having an emerging understanding of sex and the pleasures of the body. Sin wasn't asking Asking a good question. Sin wasn't all of these frightened versions of that really bad religion speaks about. Sin was participating in power dynamics that keep people marginalized and then blame them for their own marginalization. That's sin. I want to hear a little bit more about the Corrymeela community that you've um, led until very recently. It, it, I love the line on the website when you talk about yourselves as we are people of doctrine and people of question, which makes me uh, implies that even within the community, living together and working together and in a dispersed way as well, you have people at all different points on the spectrum. So from what you've learned about speaking across boundaries of belief and non-belief there, that when people think about the discussions around belief and belief, they often think about these quite fractious public debates between the new atheists and religious interest groups or kind of scrapping over faith schools or various other things. What have you discovered that is more helpful and productive and fruitful than those things? 
So religion, I think, can be very beneficial to having difficult discussions, and it can also really contribute to the difficult discussions in a negative way. I like to think of religion as public poetry, maybe another way of saying that, is a gathering story. So certainly for people involved in the Christian stories, you say that they're the Gospels are a gathering story for people. People might have all kinds of windows and doorways they look into or, or go into the story of the Gospels, the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. But there's a central interest in a gathering story. And so I like the plurality of that. And I like the recognition that there is something that draws many people together. And then within the context of that, I like also that within Christianity, there are four versions of, of a story about a character that seem to evade description. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John each portray Jesus in a different lens. Um, in some, he's quite secretive. In some, he's very extroverted. In some, he's very emotional. In some, he speaks a lot about enemies. In others, he speaks a lot about friends. And I love the diversity of that character. And I think what Corimela has done very well and has moved me very much has been to say, well, if that is the source of the story of Jesus of Nazareth, with the recognition that there are different places to start the story and the community is enhanced by recognizing different places to start a story, well, can't we therefore look at our surroundings, look at the ongoing legacy of British colonialism in Ireland and say, let's find different ways to start the story and let's bring people who start the story in different places together in order to be able to share their beginning places. If, for instance, on a practical level at Coromila, we were to have people who were wishing to speak about the Troubles, and you said to people, what is the story of the Troubles? Where would you start it if you just had to give the first sentence? Somebody probably would say, okay, everything was fine up to 1969. Somebody else might say, well, it all started when the British partitioned Ireland when they left in the early 1920s. Somebody else would say it started with the Act of Union. Somebody else would say it started with the colonial imagination that some countries in Europe went to other countries in Europe and took their languages and took their governments. And so somebody else might say the trouble started the day that my mother was murdered by the police or a paramilitary organization. So people have very different beginning points. And the reality that you need to do in a place like Ireland and the north of Ireland, especially where there is a long history of of the daily contemporary impact of the past, one needs to recognize that a part of what peace will look like is the muscular capacity for people to be in the same place as each other, recognizing that people start the story of terror in different places. And we need to flex that muscle of co-living in the same space with each other and not feel like my story is violated because you started elsewhere, but also your story can't be violated just because I started elsewhere. That is painful. It asks too much of those who've already suffered too much, but the alternative is awful. One of the your quotes that's really stuck with me is, we need stories of belonging that move us towards each other, not away from each other. And you also quoted someone else, I think, saying, sectarianism is belonging gone wrong. One of the threads that I think happens very powerfully in our public debates is this tension between a kind of universalizing instinct, which wants us as human beings to feel equally kind of connected and committed and alike with everyone on a, the biggest scale possible, and lots of Christians would read Jesus as a kind of catalyst for some of that, versus a more kind of, they might call it realistic or pragmatic approach to belonging. Like Someone like David Goodhart, who's been on the podcast, would say, actually, it's just not feasible. We can't hold that many people in our hearts. We need to build and connect to these smaller communities, these smaller places of belonging, and that that can be a powerful good in the world too, as long as they're not exclusivist. And we seem to kind of move back and forth between those poles, and it feels like quite a deep kind of underlying clash of sacred values. So I think my question is, what are the kind of stories that you found that help make sense of those two desires within us? 
that's beautifully said. I really like the outline you've given. I turned to poetry immediately. I think it, I read it first from Robert Frost, where he said poetry, in order to be universal, must be parochial. And I love that word parochial. It comes into English from the Greek word parousia, which on the one hand speaks of um, some kind of afterlife, but on the other hand also speaks of exile. The word in Greek parousia can speak to both of those. And so poetry, in order to be universal, must be parochial, to speak to the deep longing of fulfillment in the human heart and the deep exilic reality that we are all exiled from ourselves and each other. And I, uh, Elizabeth Bowen, writing in the 20th century, said to turn from everything to one face is to find oneself face to face with everything. We have a desire for the particular and through the window of the particular, I think we have a desire to look into the heart of the human condition. And different people will locate themselves along that spectrum. Some will be really motivated by the big cosmic tale. Other people will be really, really interested in the small, intimate community of 10 people and they don't want to know anybody else. And I like the fact that there is a broad spectrum of people whose orientations at different times of their lives are linked to their participation in the human human connection in those ways. I see some people who when they tr I see some people who when they try to look at stories that hold the human condition together are desperate to say the stories are all the same and they seek to find common ground. Uh, I, I I can appreciate the desire for that. I am a little bit cautious because sometimes that desperation to find common ground can have the unintended impact of treating different ground like a thing to be feared. When I find different ground a thing to be absolutely embraced, I have mother tongues, two of them, but I love learning other mother tongues. And that is not just a function of language, it's also a function of imagination. I have a mother imagination or a few mother imaginations through the particularity of my circumstance, the politics of Ireland, the, uh, real, the, the my gender, my orientation, my interests in art, my interests in religions, those give me mother imaginations which are profoundly different to other people's. And that is not a frightening thing for me, but it is an invitation for me to think, how can my imagination expand when I meet people for whom there are different particularities? Uh, this is going to feel like probably a very painting by numbers question for you, but I, the more I uh, do this podcast and become more and more interested in these issues of difference and division, the more I discover the riches of the intellectual tradition and the practical tradition of conflict resolution that faith communities have been such an enormous part of. And I feel like that tradition isn't as well known as it should be. So are there maybe just one or two key principles from that tradition that you'd want to always be talking about and always be applying, or alternatively, perhaps a few thinkers or key texts that if people want to go and dig into that was a place they could start? Yeah, I'll start with mentioning a few key texts. Um, Joe Lichty and Cecilia Clegg have an extraordinary book called Moving Beyond Sectarianism, published by Columba Press in 2001, I think it was. And it, it really is a landscape of the experience of sectarianism in Ireland. And they're the ones who define sectarianism as belonging gone bad. And I love the brevity as well as the depth of that. Belonging is the first word there. And we all wish to belong. And it's the recognition to be slightly wary of forms of belonging, all forms of belonging, to look at, are there barbed wires at the edges of my form of belonging? Does my form of belonging need a scapegoated other? So that text is extraordinary and is timeless. Uh, it's particular though it is to speak about the context of Ireland in the couple of years after the Good Friday Agreement. And the Good Friday Agreement was not, was not the culmination of peace, but the beginning of peace. And peace is usually measured uh, in the way to recognise that 
for as long as it took the conflict to escalate, it'll take as long as it will take as long for the conflict to de-escalate. And so arriving at an agreement is just the beginning of the de-escalation. And it might take 70 years or 500 years, depending as to how long trauma, the abuse, the disenfranchisement and the dehumanization of a people has happened within the context of a conflict. Another seminal text for Karamila is uh, The Moral Imagination by John Paul Lederach. He has um, what seems to be a very simple, but what in practicality is an extraordinarily sophisticated and demanding model of understanding that peace is built upon um, the times when groupings of people from across differences come together in paradoxical curiosity, deepen their care for each other and engage in projects of creativity and risk. And that takes a lifetime to outwork. Uh, again, deeper than that, René Girard died a couple of years ago and spent a lifetime really exploring the patterns of scapegoating that communities can find themselves in. And René Girard's analysis is a very, it isn't the only, but it is a very important foundation for the Coromeda community. Thank you. The Moral Imagination has been um, a very powerful book in my thinking, so I'd, uh, I'd heartily recommend it also. Um, final question about the relationship between community living and reconciliation. It's noticeable to me that I've had Archbishop uh, Welby on the podcast recently, and he set up the community of St. Anselm within the grounds of Lambeth Palace, which is an ecumenical kind of neo-monastic community where pe some people are there in the long term, and then other people can go and live for a year and take part in these rhythms of prayer and hospitality and service, driven by one of his priorities around prayer, but also driven by one of his priorities about reconciliation. Why do you think uh, community living, these kind of intentional forms of putting ourselves together is so connected to reconciliation and what has your experience of it been? I've had uh, years and years of experience of community living for about 10 years, living in a shared household with people in intentional Christian community. And then since then, living in dispersed Christian community where people living in their own homes are nonetheless finding patterns of shared meals and prayer routine where you are feeling like connected to a broader experience. And that is the Carmela tradition. And um, we are a dispersed community. I, I think it is an imagination of utopia that might get one into it. <laughs> and it, it, that imagination of utopia usually lasts a a few weeks and it's a delicious imagination but then it comes um, crashing down and becomes incarnated into the realities of what do I say to somebody that they drive me mad how if I'm sharing a dorm with somebody who likes the window open all night and I don't like the window open all night how do I talk about these things and so um, community escalates intensity and there's no getting away from that community really does escalate a very important part of intensity. And I don't think community is permanent. I think that the religious communities that I've seen of monks and nuns, they have ways within which even living in community, there's profound practices and provisions for privacy. And that is a really important thing to recognize in communities that work for a long time. Similarly, I think communities that work really well have rhythms and rhythms of the day that allow you to come to those rhythms. They might be prayer, they might be practices. I'm sure there's intentional community that gather for yoga a few times a day and there's there's so it doesn't have to be anything about the beyond it can be utterly embodied in the now but practices that gather you together are, are a public demonstration about what the attempt and the essay towards community can look like and i think language that is grounded and embodied in what ordinary relationships can look like rather than elevated understandings of pure perfection communities are rife with conflict filled with envy and jealousies just like all relationships uh, community just turns up the volume on that a little bit because it's a little bit harder to get away from people i will ask one more question which i ask everyone which is just about their their experience of bridging divides 
and I don't really usually I you know I can say to someone who's a who who's an atheist you know are there things that you'd like atheists to do better or stop doing and are there things that you'd like religious people to do better or stop doing across these differences you sit on so many axes that I don't know exactly how to categorize it for you and I think that's a powerfully good thing so just is there one key lesson you've learned that would help everyone as they're seeking to be peacemakers really or at least bridge people who can help de-escalate rather than exacerbate conflict so uh- I love it when somebody has, when somebody asks a question and they know they don't know the answer. So often in groupings of people that are being brought together across difference by choice or by force, the the performance of their discourse is a performance of ready, of already pre-arrived at conclusions. And the questions and engagements can seem like, well, because of this, you do the following, don't you? And that's not a question. It's not a generous movement toward the other. And it has, you have to do a lot of work to disprove somebody's already formed imagination about you. And that is rarely fruitful. I love it when I see people of tremendous courage and generosity ask a question and it's clear they don't know, they don't have an imagination what the answer is and they're seeking to believe, even across difference, even across power disparities, that that practice of generosity can bring people who are hostile to the other into the generous, hospitable experience of being believed and something new is created in that moment. And we do not know what will happen with that something new but what we certainly know is we can't predict it. And conflict is so often so predictable that it is wonderful in courageous moments when groupings of people who find themselves at odds with each other can do something that opens up the possibility of surprise and the unpredictable because then nobody knows what happens. And if people are courageous enough, somebody else might say something unexpected. And we might find ourselves in a moment where we discover something totally new that transforms us. Roger, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Nate Bethay, and it is a project of the Think Tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast, or me at Theos Elizabeth, or thesacredpodcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast we're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.